Amen. Good morning. Good morning to those of you at home, too. We know many of you are online this morning, and we are so glad that you're joining us as well, and trust that you had your fill of turkey, we hope, or whatever it is that you eat at Thanksgiving and had some time to give thanks to the Lord. And now we're entering into the Advent season. We've wrapped up our series in the book of Philippians, and uh, turn with me, if you will, now to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1. And, uh, and thanks, too, just a reminder, in all of our services, because of rising COVID numbers, we're wearing masks here in person. So thanks for adhering to that and just being thoughtful in that way. Um, thank you very much. As we turn to our Advent series, now every really Advent season, every month of December or kind of end of November and into December, we take time to reflect upon what it means that Jesus Christ has come in person, this thing we call the incarnation. That may be a new idea to you. Uh, the incarnation is, is the thing that the church celebrates, which says that God has become man and come to live among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we reflect on that in this season as a way of not only building anticipation kind of up to Christmas, but also uh, importantly, as a way of remembering that this season is about much more than just nostalgia. I think sometimes we think that sort of the specialness of this season, we all feel it. Uh, what's, the, what's the song? It's the most wonderful time of the year. Is that Bing Crosby? I don't remember who sings it, right? But it's the most wonderful time of the year. We recognize that. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, and that's true sort of across the spectrum, not just within the church. And I think the reason we feel that is because even those who are not in faith are recognizing that God is up to something in the season. He reminds us of something in the season. He reminds us uh, in not just through, it's not just well-lit trees and the nostalgia of great family times from the past and all those things that make us feel that sort of magic of Christmas, but rather that this is a season wherein God is reminding us and pointing to something mysterious and great and big and beyond us and the mystery of the incarnation and the power of it as well as the invitation of it strike us whether we know it or not i would argue it strikes us and so we return again to think about that now in these next three sundays together and then again i guess the next four sundays together and then into christmas week where we hope you'll join us to to worship together as we lead up to then christmas morning where we celebrate the birth of our savior and our king so if you've turned to matthew chapter one we're going to look now in this series we're calling do you see what i see at the gospel narratives in Matthew and in Luke and look at it through the eyes of different characters. Now, when I say characters, I don't mean like characters in a fictional novel, but rather characters, those through whom God acted out this incarnational work, those who were there in the moment, those who were there in the days leading up to it. And so each week, we're gonna look at this narrative of Jesus coming into the world through the eyes of different people who experienced it. So today, we're going to look through Joseph's eyes and ask, how would the incarnation have struck him? And in the weeks to come, we'll look at it through the eyes of Herod and Mary and the shepherds and, and a few other folks throughout the, throughout the list of these gospel narratives in Matthew and in Luke. And as we do that, we'll find something valuable. Now, let's play a little game here uh, with me. Play along at home if you're with us. You'll see these pictures on the screen. I want you to tell me I'm gonna ask you what you see first when you look at the pictures I'm about to show you. Not what you see overall, but what do you see first, all right? So everybody look at the screens. Let's put up the first one here, team. All right, take a look. How many of you see a duck? Okay, a lot of you. How many of you see a rabbit? Less of you. Now you see that some of you are like, that's a duck. Oh, wait, now you see the rabbit, all right. There you go, okay, good. Here's the next one. Okay. How many of you see a vase? Okay, that's the first thing you see. How many of you see two faces looking at one another? 
All right, more of you for that one. Okay, good. Fantastic. And then our last one. How many of you see a woman's face? Okay, how many of you first saw a cartoonish saxophone player? All right, fantastic, there you go. Now here's the thing, in every one of those pictures I showed you, both of the things that I asked you, they're there, right? I'm not making that up, they're, they're really there. Now you may have come with a friend or come with a spouse and they saw one thing and you saw another, you're both right, okay? So I can, I can settle the argument for you for today's lunch. You're both right. All right, one of you is like rabbit, the other one's like duck. They're both there, right? Not unlike this, as we look at the incarnation, depending on your view, you saw different things, right? Some of you, for whatever reason, you saw a duck. Others of you saw a rabbit. Some of you saw a saxophone player. Some of you saw a woman's face. Not sure what that says about you, right? But depending on your vantage point, you saw something. The same thing is true of the incarnation. These different aspects of the incarnation are present, but different people are gonna help us see those aspects as we look at them, right? So as we look at the life of, life of Joseph, we're gonna see something that's true about the incarnation for everybody, but Joseph may have experienced it in such a unique way that he helps us see it differently when we look through his eyes. Does that make sense? All right, so let's look together then, because what we're gonna find in Matthew chapter one, verse 18 through 25, that's where we're gonna start, is that we're gonna see that the lens of looking through Joseph's eyes is gonna help us see that the incarnation means surrender of our plans for God's plan. Surrender of our plans for our lives for God's plan. That's certainly what it meant for Joseph, as we will see. And he's gonna teach us three truths, three truths about how we surrender our plan for God's plans. Now let me just, before we go into the text, let me just make, an, make a statement here. Like we have to ask the question first, of, well, why does the incarnation mean that? Why does God coming into the world in the form of Jesus, why does that mean that we have to surrender the plan that we have for our lives in order to take up God's plan for our lives? And there's probably a variety of answers to that question, but here's the most important one, I think is God could have worked salvation in different ways, right? He, now, there's, there's always a question of like, Jesus is in the garden and he's praying and he's saying, Lord, if there's another way, like, let it be that way, right? But not my will, but your will. And Jesus seems, God seems to say, no, this is the way. This is the way I'm gonna work out redemption. Now, that's not to say that God in his infinite wisdom and perfect sovereignty couldn't have chosen to work out salvation for humankind differently, but this is the way that he has chosen. And of course, we see the wisdom of it, both fully satisfying his justice and his love, which both had to be satisfied. So it's hard to imagine what other way there could have been other than the incarnation and crucifixion of the Son of God, fully man, fully divine. It's hard to imagine what that could have been, but we don't wanna say that God in his infinite wisdom couldn't have done anything that he wanted to do sovereignly, and yet this is what he's chosen to do. Now that being the case, friends, here's the thing. The fact that God has chosen to work his redemptive plan by sending his Son, fully God, into the world means that he's chosen to not work salvation from distant from us, but to come near us, to come among us. And if it means nothing else, it means that that redemptive work, we have a part in that redemptive work and participating with it. Jesus has brought it about, and now the incarnation says to us that he invites us into his redemptive work. Do you know that? He invites you and I into the work that he has done to redeem people, to proclaim the message of the gospel, to share it with others through our love, through our acts of service, that he invites us into it. And if he's invited us into it, then our whole lives must be about that plan and not our own plan. Does that make sense? So the incarnation for Joseph and no less for us 
means that we have to lay down our plan for our lives and take up God's. Surrender. The incarnation means surrender. Look with me, Matthew chapter one, verse 18 through 25. Let's read those verses together. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, as we read that story, Matthew spends a good amount of time focusing on Joseph, actually. There's going to be three sections of this first chapter and the second chapter uh, together of Matthew, where Joseph is kind of a main character, and he's not a character in the narrative that we get a lot of attention to in Luke or in Mark, especially not in John, who doesn't tell the birth narrative. But here in Matthew, Joseph gets a decent amount of attention, and through his life, we learn that the incarnation means the surrender of our plan to God's, as we said. So let's take three lessons now, three lessons about this. The first lesson is this. The formation of our character prepares us to surrender our plans for God's plan. The formation of our character is what prepares us to surrender our plan for God's plan. Now, I love verse 19 here. I, the whole narrative is great, and at the end of it, at the very end of it, before I get to verse 19, I love the fact that Joseph has this dream, and what's the very next thing that we hear? I don't know, we have to recognize, this would have been a complete disruption in Joseph's life. Do you think this was Joseph's plan for his life? Do you think he had anywhere in mind that this was going to be what he was gonna spend his life doing? I guarantee you he had no concept of this and no idea of this, and yet he has this dream uh, an angel visits him in his sleep. And my favorite line, maybe in the whole narrative that we just read, is that Joseph woke up, and the very next thing it says is what? And he obeyed. He woke up, and he obeyed. Now that, I don't know if he wrestled for an hour in the morning. I don't know if it took him five minutes, but that kind of obedience to the will of God, just say, okay, my plans were these for my family, for my life, for having children, for all of it, and now it's all different. Everything has changed in one night, and now this is the plan. But follow how the formation of Joseph's character became pivotal in helping him to move to laying down his own plan and taking up God's. In verse 19, we find these words. Look again with me. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. It's not by accident that Matthew comments on Joseph's character and calls him a just man. Now, I want to point something out to you there, a couple things that are important to recognize. Betrothal in the New Testament, in Jewish culture, is very different than our engagement. Uh, they both mean, obviously, that you're promising to marry someone, but there's no legally binding agreement to our engagement. If you break off an engagement, there's no legal ramifications for that, right, in our society. There are legal ramifications for uh, breaking off a betrothal in Joseph's day and age. And so when he finds Mary to be with child, and the indicators are that Mary has not communicated to Joseph what 
the angel has told her. They would have been living separate for one year. They've become engaged or betrothed to one another. And that betrothal is a legal contract. It's a binding agreement to get married. They're not yet living together as husband and wife in the same home. Joseph is preparing his home to bring Mary into it, at which point they would begin to live as husband and wife. But the only way out of betrothal is divorce. They would have to legally get divorced in order to to break their agreement. So there's a legally binding nature to this betrothal thing. It's a little heavier and stronger than just our modern day understanding of engagement, which is why the text says that he determined to what? To divorce her quietly. The second thing I want you to understand is that as Joseph finds out that Mary has a child, right, and doesn't necessarily yet understand where that's coming from, it's not until, or sorry, he has determined to divorce her quietly because the text describes him as a what? As a just man. Now, in the Old Testament understanding of that word, to be just is to be someone who adheres to the law. To be just is to be someone who adheres to the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, a woman who was found to be in Mary's condition would be stoned to death. That was the penalty for that kind of action outside of the bonds of marriage. And so Joseph though, being just, and then the very next sentence, because he was just, determined to do what? Not to report her, have her stoned, but to divorce her quietly, not wanting to bring shame upon her. Now, what's so interesting about that is that here in the New Testament, right at the beginning of the New Testament, the first chapter of the New Testament, we find this idea of justice in the Old Testament being to adhere to the law, now combined with the grace of God. And that to be a just person, to be a just man, is now to bring together the practice of the law, and also the grace of God. That those two things go hand in hand. And so Joseph is not described as just merciful. He's described as just. But now for the first time, to be just means to be a man of mercy and also a man who understands righteousness under the law. And therefore, he's going to divorce her, but he's gonna do so quietly, not wanting to bring shame upon her. Now, God intervenes and changes his direction. But the first thing that I want you to see, church, is that it's the character of Joseph that has been carefully built over years and years that enables him to surrender to God's plan rather than sticking to his own. And don't you find that to be true in your life? The only way when God intervenes in your plans and says, you're gonna need to lay down your plan because I've got a different one for you. I've got a different direction, a different trajectory, something that's gonna be hard, something that's unexpected, something that's gonna make you look foolish. The only way to lay down your plan and take up God's is to have spent time investing in and developing your character so that you're ready for that moment. Now here's the thing, friends. This is hard, but I wonder how many of us even see our daily actions through the lens of how they're shaping our character. The next time you make a decision about what you do at work or what you do in your home or how you discipline your kids or the way you love your spouse or who you ask out on a date, the next time you make a decision about how you spend your time, I want you to ask the question, how is this shaping my character? Because it is shaping your character. Every decision, every choice shapes our character and the shape of our character prepares us to say yes to God and no to our own ways. It's really that simple and there's no way around it. But that's what Joseph was prepared to do. He was prepared to say yes to a very strange plan and to a complete left turn in his own life because he was a just man who had cultivated his character. When God interrupts your plans, nothing but firm character will enable you to willingly walk in God's plan. 
Every good choice, every good choice makes you stronger to yield to the plans of God. And I say that intentionally because you have to be strong in order to yield, strong in order to surrender. And every choice of good character develops that in you. I always think about in the, at the founding of our nation, uh, George Washington, our first president, certainly not a perfect man, but a man of good character by all accounts, right? And one of the things that is so interesting is there are two times in Washington's life where he willingly laid down power. And I don't know how much history you studied, but the first is after winning the Revolutionary War, most generals of most armies who won independence for their country from a, a, a foreign government would regularly do what? They would take up power. And they would rule as the new king, right? As the new leader of the nation. And yet Washington didn't do that. And then again, after two terms as president, there was no constitutional law that said he could no longer be president. He could run for a third and a fourth. And many anticipated that he would do just that. But after two terms, Washington set a really important precedent for our country, didn't he? And he laid down power. He laid down power and he walked away. So in one of, in a biography about Washington, or maybe it was just a little article commenting on a biography about Washington. King George III, who was his adversary, uh, the king of Great Britain, said this. Uh, we'll give the last word to him here. It says, the king, King George III, asked his American painter, Benjamin West, who was painting a portrait of King George III. He asked him what Washington would do after winning independence. And West replied, they say he will return to his farm. If he does that, the incredulous monarch said, he will be the greatest man in the world. You get what he's saying. What King George recognizes as one with power is that to voluntarily surrender power takes a kind of character that no man has. And for Washington to do that was display was a display of character that had been carefully cultivated over time to be willing to surrender. And friends, it's no less true for us. The only way to surrender power over your own life your own plan for your life, the way you want it to go, the way you want it to look, the pathway you want to take, the only way to surrender that is to be careful in the cultivation of your character so that when God says, no, we're taking a left turn, you say, okay, I wake up and I obey. You with me? That's the first lesson Joseph teaches. Now, the second lesson that Joseph teaches us about surrendering our plan for God's plan as we look at the incarnation is that surrendering... Surrendering our plans for God sometimes means losing status in the world. It sometimes means losing status in the world. Look at verse 18 with me again. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, the thing I want to note here as it relates to Joseph's life is how many people in Joseph's life do you think said to him, she is lying to you? You are being duped. That is not a child conceived by the Holy Spirit. You are a fool. There's a, there's a really telling fact in this portion of the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 1 and Matthew, more than any other section really of Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, we see these angelic visits happening numerous times. We're going to see three more, actually, just in Joseph's life in just a moment. Because this is so foreign and so unusual and so unique. It's never happened before and never will happen again. Because that has, because that's its uniqueness. The thing that we're meant to understand is that it took a lot of direct divine guidance to understand that this is what God's plan actually was. 
Joseph would have looked like a fool to everybody looking on. Anyone who knew anything about the situation, any family member who had knowledge that Mary had become pregnant before they'd come together during their betrothal knew what had transpired and looked at Joseph probably as one who was foolish for doing this. Now, listen, here's the brilliance of God's plan in the incarnation. Because while scholars recognize and theologians recognize, God could have sent Jesus into the world and made him fully divine and fully human, both of which seem necessary for God's plan of salvation to be worked out in this way to satisfy all of God's righteous requirements, right? He could have made him fully God and fully man without the virgin birth, without, and better said, the virgin conception. Without that, Jesus still could have in some unique way been fully divine and fully human. But doesn't the virgin conception so clearly point to it that it's such a beautiful and brilliant plan where before Mary is married, she conceives. If it's after she's married, then everyone can say, oh, it's a, this is a normal human birth, but this is unique and it's different because the conception happens before she's ever come together with her husband, pointing to the full divinity of Jesus. But yet at the same time, Joseph is uniquely suited to be Jesus's earthly father because he is from the house and line of David. And in those days in Jewish culture, we don't know if Mary was from the line of David. It's unclear, but we know Joseph was. And the legal standing that any son had came from the line of his father, not the line of his mother. Therefore, Jesus would be recognized as in the line of David, fulfilling all the prophecies of the Old Testament that the Messiah, the Savior, would come from David's line, from David's family. And so Joseph is uniquely suited for this as his earthly father. So as a, as a human, Jesus is recognized as a Messiah coming from the line of David. And yet having been born in a unique conception, in a virgin conception, we see the brilliance of God in displaying both that he is not just a man who is a savior, he is God in the flesh. So the brilliance and the beauty of the virgin conception points us to this reality, the full divinity and the full humanity of Christ. But that virgin birth required Joseph to look foolish. Had it been an ordinary birth, he wouldn't have looked as foolish. Do you follow what I'm saying? God's plan made him look stupid. And he willingly went forward in it. Now, let's go even further, because not only does he lose status in that way, but look now at chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. Here's a section that we just like read right past it most of the time when we're reading these gospel narratives at Christmas time. But look at chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. The wise men have come. They've become aware that Herod wants to destroy Jesus because he's been born a king, and Herod's worth, uh, worried about being replaced. And so it says this, now when they had departed, talking about the wise men, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, get that. Don't just read past that because what did we just read? Not only does Joseph have all his plans about his own, having his own children and what that might look like and what his firstborn would be like and now everything has changed. Not only has that come about, now as a result of God's plan, he has to become a refugee, which means he has to, in the middle of the night, flee his own country and move to another country where he has no political status, no status to work or make a living he has no relatives around him to help provide for him or care for him, no social safety network. He is now 
moving lower and lower in status into a place where he has no legal standing. Think about that for a moment. And we're told that this happens as a fulfillment of the prophecy in Hosea chapter 11, verse one. Out of Egypt, I will call my son, or I have called my son. In other words, God has ordained this. Long before it happened, he had designed that this would be exactly how it would go. Joseph, for Joseph to embrace God's plan, to surrender to God's plan, meant to be lowered in status yet again, not just to look like a fool, but to become a refugee in a home that was not his. Now, go even further, if you will, because Joseph is lowered even more. In verses 19 through 23 of chapter two, we find this. But when Herod died, so now years have passed, Herod has died. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So that would have been pretty good. So far you think, oh, awesome, fantastic. Herod's dead, all is well, we're safe now. And the angels told us to go back. But look what happens in verse 22. But when Joseph heard, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, that's the southern part of Israel, in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, that's in the far north of Israel. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, it's a little easy to miss something that, that Matthew's trying to tell us there in the text, this part of the story. The first thing to know is a little bit of the history here. So when Herod dies, his kingdom is split up among his sons. And Archelaus rules in Judea, which is where Bethlehem is, in that area. So he becomes the ruler of the place that perhaps Joseph wanted to return to. That would make a lot of sense, given that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He's going to be the Savior, the Messiah. So being raised in Bethlehem perhaps was the plan. But Joseph now recognizes that Archelaus, who is a cruel and violent and wicked man, might enact the same kinds of things that his father did. And so he says, I'm gonna move to another region uh, where Herod Antipas, one of Herod's other son, is ruling and reigning. And he, as a ruler, was relatively weak and ineffectual. So it felt like a safer place to be. So we see both God warning Joseph and then Joseph's wisdom to say, we should go in this direction. And so he winds up being raised in Nazareth. Now we're told that Joseph had some family in Nazareth. That's probably why he returns there. The fact that he had lived there, perhaps Joseph was even raised there. We're not sure, but he had at least spent time there. But here's the important thing. At the end of that text, it said that he was raised in Nazareth as a fulfillment of prophecy. But if you look through the whole Old Testament, there is no prophecy like all the other ones that we've already looked at in Isaiah chapter seven, we're gonna see one in prophecies that is fulfilled. Hosea chapter 11 that we just looked at. There is no prophecy anywhere in the Old Testament that you can find that says that the Messiah will be raised in Nazareth or come out of Nazareth. So what does the New Testament mean here when it says that he was raised in Nazareth in order to fulfill the prophecy that he would be a Nazarene? Well, most scholars think the best way to understand this is that what is being said here by Matthew is that all the prophecies about the, about the Messiah in the Old Testament, or many of them, point to the fact that he's not gonna be a person of great reputation or privilege or prestige. He's not gonna be a person who comes from uh, sort of a palace. He's gonna be a person that comes from poverty. He's gonna be a person that comes sort of from nowhere. And Nazareth, my friends, is the definition of nowhere. In Acts chapter 23, we see that the, the Jews call the new Christians, they call them the Nazarite sect. And that's an insult 
and it's meant to be an insult. In other words, they're saying, you're a group of people that are from nowhere and going nowhere. That's what they mean when they call them a sect of the Nazarene or a Nazarite sect. So when we hear that Jesus is fulfilling, fulfilling prophecy by being from Nazareth, what Matthew's probably saying there is that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy that the Messiah is gonna come from nowhere and going to be presumed to be nothing, no one of human importance, no one of prestige, no one of authority in his upbringing. So get this as it pertains to Joseph. Maybe he had dreams of going to Bethlehem and being in Judea, being in this. Bethlehem's a small place, but it's close to Jerusalem. It's also the place everyone knows the Messiah is going to come from. And so perhaps there's some prestige waiting there for the father of the Messiah. And yet, in order to do God's plan, where does Joseph have to go? Middle of nowhere. Go live, out in, go live out in the sticks, Joseph, and eke out a living. That's gonna be your life. That's gonna be the plan that I have for you. To surrender to God's plan. Listen, not all pathways of following Jesus mean losing status in the world. Not all of them do. I mean, think about Daniel in the Old Testament who is put in a position of power, actually, as a way of serving God. For some of you, to follow God's plan for your life might mean to inhabit positions of prestige and power. That's, that's possible. But often, to surrender to God's plan means to surrender to losing status in the world, to losing prestige in the world, because we don't live by the same values or for the same purposes that the world lives for. And so often, to surrender to God's plan means to lose status in the world, perhaps to look foolish like Joseph looked foolish. Perhaps to be raised in a place or in a position of no status, no privilege, perhaps even for a time to be like a refugee without power, without privilege, without position to even protect yourself or your rights. Every time I think about this, I think about a sermon that I heard. Now, look, as a preacher, I recognize that sermons have a cumulative effect, but I recognize that not many single sermons are very well remembered, okay? So I'm, I'm under no illusion here, but we preach God's word week by week and cumulatively it takes root in us and that's a good and important thing. But I remember a few sermons, just like you, there's ones that stick out. And I remember a guest pastor who came and preached at my church in Austin and this sermon stuck out to me. This illustration in this sermon has always stuck out to me. It actually kind of changed the trajectory of my mindset. I think that there was a time in life where I thought, I am meant to do something great for God. I'm meant to do something big for God. This pastor came and he, he shared with us an illustration. He, at the time, it was maybe eight years ago or so, and he said that recently the Hubble telescope had discovered a planet sort of outside of our galaxy that no one had ever known existed in all of human history. It had been there, of course, but no one had ever known about it, and we just recently discovered it. So for all of human history, this planet had existed unknown. You have to ask the question, why did God make that planet? Did he make the planet just because he took pleasure in it? No one else knew, but he knew. And he said, I love, I want this planet to be there. And the question he asked reframed my thinking around my service to, to the Lord. He said, what if God made you to be like that planet? What if his purpose for you was to do something no one would ever know about? What if the service that you were to offer to him was one that would bring you no acclaim, no prestige, and no one would ever know about? But he knows. Is that enough for you? It struck me like a thunderbolt. Lord, I don't know if I'm supposed to be like the Earth or Mars or Venus, or if I'm supposed to be that planet that no one's ever seen or heard about. But whatever you want me to be, that's what I want to be. 
friends, there is no, listen, there is no unimportant work in God's redemptive plan. Whatever he's designed you to do, it's not unimportant. Even if no one sees it and no one knows about it, he takes pleasure in it because he sees and he knows and we can rejoice and delight in that. But can I also say this to you? If his call to you is to do, I mean, imagine the work of God like a puzzle, you know? And some of us, we like the idea of being that corner piece, right? It's important. You gotta have that corner piece in place for the whole thing to come together. Or those border pieces, those are very satisfying at the beginning, yes? Frame the whole thing. Or maybe we wanna be that last piece that gets put in place in the middle. You're like, aha, so satisfying. That completed the whole thing. This is the big deal piece. But what if you're just that piece kind of off to the right bottom Kind of one color, nobody, you don't even really know where it goes for a while and then it kind of just fits in and then you just ignore it and you just keep going. What if that's the piece that you are? Is that enough? We have to see our lives, not through the lens of our own trajectory of what we want to accomplish with our lives, but through the fact that we belong to the purposes of God. He has a redemptive purpose in the world. He's working it, he's putting the puzzle together. And whatever piece of that puzzle we are, we just need to be that. We don't need to worry about whether we're not a corner piece or whether we're a, an edge piece or whether we're a piece that's really colorful and beautiful and everybody's gonna look at it and go, wow, that piece is awesome when that one goes in place. The purpose of your life and mine is to be whatever piece of the puzzle God has made us to be and to be content and glad and to rejoice. Maybe we're the planet no one will ever know about, but God knows and he is well satisfied to make different pieces, to go in different places. Kind of like Joseph, the surrender of his plan to God's plan meant becoming less in status, less important, less identified. You notice that we don't hear a lot about Joseph after this. We have no idea what happens to Joseph. He's not there at the cross. He's not there beyond the dedication at the temple. In Luke chapter two, we just don't hear much about Joseph we don't know if he lived another two years, another 10 years, if he, we have no idea. What an interesting part to play in God's redemptive work, but an important one nonetheless. Last thing that we learn here, last thing that we learn from Joseph is that surrendering our plans for God's means taking up a work that is beyond our capability. It means taking up a work that's too hard for us you notice how many times the angels have to give him divine guidance. We already talked about that. That's a, that's a little hint, if you will, in the text that the kind of thing that God has called Joseph to is way too hard for him. He's not capable of it. It's beyond him. And friends, I don't care if you're the planet out in the far, furthest reaches uh, of the galaxy or in another galaxy that have, has only recently been discovered and no one knew about. The work that God has for you, whatever piece of the puzzle you are, is beyond your capability. And the reason it's beyond your capability is because God wants you to live in a state of constant dependence. He wants you to live in a constant state of need for him and a constant state of an awareness of this. This is whatever my piece is. It's beyond my capability. It's beyond my capacity. If you're a Christian, just get used to that feeling. Get used to the feeling of it being beyond you, bigger than you, harder than you are capable of accomplishing. When you take up the purposes of God, it's just always going to feel that way. Look with me again at verse 20 and 23 of chapter one. So back into chapter one here. I just wanna point this out to you. So here's what we hear. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That would have been daunting enough, right? Like, what does this mean? Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. Now, pause right there before you read the last three words of that verse. He shall save his people. Now, that maybe wouldn't have been a surprise when he said, call his name Jesus. That's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua. So if your name's Joshua, you have the Hebrew name that is the Greek equivalent, uh, to which Jesus is the Greek equivalent, right? It's a great name, and you probably know this already. It means one who saves. And so when he says he shall be called Jesus, Joshua was not an uncommon name. So for him to be a savior could have been Okay, maybe I'm having a son that's going to save the nation in some physical way. Maybe I have a son who's going to do some saving work, kind of like Joshua in the Old Testament, who helped deliver God's people out of, out of slavery in Egypt and then brought them into the promised land. He was a savior of a kind. Maybe that's what Joseph thought. But then the, the end of the sentence tells Joseph that something way bigger is up. Look at what it says. End of verse 21. Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their, what? Sins. In other words, this is a different kind of saving that's gonna be done by this son of yours. That's not a regular phrase, to save people from their sins. Only God can do that. And then what we're told, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Talking about Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14 here. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, what Joseph has just learned is that his son, who is going to be born to him now, who is virgin conceived, is virgin conceived because he's the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter seven. And the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter seven is not just a human Messiah, but a Messiah who is God in the flesh. Now, listen, some of you are parents. And if you've been a parent before, have you ever felt daunted by the task of parenting? Have you ever had a moment where you thought, I don't know how to do this. I don't, my, my kid is in this situation or that situation. I, I just don't know what to do. I don't know how to parent them. I know kids, you may think your parents like, you know, always think they know what to do and you're thinking they don't know what they're doing, you know, like whatever. But the reality is parents are figuring it out with each new stage, right? With each new stage, it's a new stage of parenting. And so we're figuring it out and often we feel daunted by the task of being a parent. It's a, it's a high calling and a big task and it's beyond us and we know it. The task of parenting is big enough. What if your child was God? Do you wanna talk about surrendering to a plan that you know you don't have the capacity to fulfill? There was no moment where Joseph said, I got this. Piece of cake. Right, we like to say Jesus was, oh, he would have been the easiest kid because he was sinless. You're raising God. None of us know how to do that. In this moment, don't read past it and just go, oh, it's kind of cute. The angel reveals this to Joseph. Now he's good to go. No, he would have been trembling in fear. You want me to do what? You want me to raise who? He's who? Absolutely daunting. And friends, no less for us than for Joseph. Whatever part God has for you to play in his redemptive work. When you surrender to God, one of the things that you're going to find 
is that it is beyond your capacity. It's beyond your capability. And that's on purpose. It's not accidental. It will be too hard for you. It will be too much. Just get comfortable with it. And in that then, know that God will fill up your incapacity. He will strengthen you. Whenever I think about this, I think about our families here in the church who are, are participating in our foster care initiative and our Safe Families Initiative, who are helping support kids and give them a place, give them a home, and love them in really hard moments in their life. Every time you talk to, every time I talk to our friends in that work, one of the things that is a regular theme that gets said is that this is really hard. It's beyond, it's beyond our capability, which is a great reminder to us church family that once some of you are called to take that work up and you haven't yet taken it up and I just wanna encourage you, take it up. Don't wait, take it up. But for those of you who maybe aren't called to specifically do that, to, to foster children in your home, what a call to us to support our families who are, yes? To be that network for them. Says, what do you need? How do I help? How can I get involved? I will help be the backbone of this process for you. I will do as many store runs as you need. I am a prayer warrior for you. I will cover you with help, cover you with prayer, cover every need that you have. How do I, how do I come alongside you? What a good reminder to us. But they are giving us a gift these members of our church family who are engaging this hard challenge, this task that is well beyond them, they're reminding us what it means to walk in God's plan. Surrender to God's plan will always mean taking up a task that is beyond our capacity, that's beyond our capability. That's a good thing to be reminded of. They give us a gift when they do that, our families who serve in this way. So friends, now as we think about the incarnation in the weeks to come, we've learned these three lessons from Joseph about surrender that looking at the incarnation through Joseph's life, we're reminded that the incarnation will always mean surrender for us. But having considered that today, let's prepare ourselves and ask ourselves where we are resisting that surrender and why. So as you leave today, I, just, I want you to consider, is there any place where I am resisting the plan of God for my life, the place he has for me, the thing he wants me to do? Perhaps something comes to mind, even as I say that, or it's been on your mind as we've been talking about this. We ponder the nature of the incarnation. We wanna gather the strength to yield, the strength to surrender. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We are glad to be yours. And we pray that you would take your word now and just plant it in our hearts as we pray week by week that it would produce a harvest of righteousness in us. We thank you for your servant, Joseph. And in your wisdom, you made him the earthly father of your son, whom you sent into the world. What a precious role he played, one we know very little about. But what you have told us is sufficient for us to see that he was a man who was willing to surrender his plan for your plan. Help us to do the same. Jesus, in this season of Advent, how good it is to reflect on the mystery of your birth, the profound nature of it and the goodness of it. You have come to save us. And we are so glad. So now receive our praises. It's our right response to praise you in response to the word that we've heard. In Jesus' name we pray.